0: I'm Amy Van Gelder and this is Wildcats Podcast, the podcast bringing you closer to the experts working to save wild tigers around the world. Each month we touch upon a different subject concerning the conservation of a species of almost mythic and fearsome power, played out on a wild and exotic stage. Tigers are so stealthy that they're near invisible, able to see you a hundred times before you see them once. But with populations plummeting over the last century, the concept of a wild tiger could soon just become some phantasm of our imagination if actions are not taken to protect these monarchs of Asia's remaining forests. In last month's episode, we heard from Debbie Banks, the tiger and wildlife crime campaign leader for the Environmental Investigation Agency, who shed some light on the illegal wildlife trade. It's clear that the movement and consumption of wildlife and their derivatives threaten both ecological security and poses a risk to public health, but the scale and complexity of the illegal trade of wildlife products makes it a very difficult problem to solve and can only be done by tackling the entire trade chain, from source to transit to destination. There are multiple strategies for combating global wildlife crime, from promoting stronger policies and laws, supporting effective law enforcement with intelligence, conducting wildlife crime research, working with e-commerce companies to make online marketplaces unavailable for wildlife trade, raising consumer awareness, and mobilising society to reject wildlife parts and products. In this episode of Wildcats Podcast, we'll be focusing on this final strategy, looking at demand reduction activities, which use behaviour change interventions as an approach to reducing the motivations for the consumption of threatened wildlife products. This is because almost all conservation problems originate from the actions and choices of people. So, to be effective, the majority of conservation interventions require changes in human behaviour. Our first guest today is Dr. Diogo Verissimo, a research fellow at Oxford University for the Oxford Martin Programme on the Illegal Wildlife Trade. Diogo is a behaviour change specialist with 15 years of experience in the fields of social marketing and community-based conservation. He is a global leader in the design and evaluation of interventions to change environmentally relevant human behaviours, having authored more than 60 peer-reviewed publications and book His research specifically focuses on behaviour change interventions to influence consumers of wildlife products with the goal of mitigating the impact these products have on biodiversity. To begin, Diogo gave us some more context about what behaviour change interventions actually are.
1: Broadly speaking, these so-called behaviour change uh, interventions encompass sort of a series of different types of, of, of approaches to try to get people to voluntarily. Change their behavior, and that's really, really the key thing. Is is that it's not, as opposed to a law, for example. Commonly, laws tell people what they cannot do. Uh, it's usually not optional. You don't get to choose which laws you. Uh, abide by, but these these behavior change approaches they focus on getting people to convincing people to change behavior of their own accord. I guess most uh, longest running example is probably education. Most often that focuses on sharing information to get people to change their concerns regarding a particular topic and so you know behave differently. Although of course things are a little bit more complex than that. So this is a sort of a whistle stop.
0: so while behavior change interventions originated in the public health arena i guess more and have successfully and probably unsuccessfully been applied for decades conservation has only just begun to embrace the powerful potential of behavioral science really in helping bring about change for wildlife product consumer choice why do you think this is yeah so uh,
1: it's, it's, it's an interesting story um Whilst I think you're right, historically, public health really has uh, really has had sort of the lion's share of of the effort when it comes to influencing behavior, things like reproductive health, for example, the forefront of smoking, uh, another, another issue that really was at the forefront of um, some of the early uh, behavior change campaigns, maybe in the 70s and then 80s, it's actually, I guess, not very well uh, known that that is already a tradition, relatively long tradition of behavior change interventions in the conservation sector. It's just that they've remained for a long time outside of the mainstream of what we what we consider to be conservation work, right? So if you go back to, for example, some of the work that an organization like Rare was doing in, in the 80s, for example, in the early 90s, so it's, it's already 30 years ago that they were doing uh, you know, pretty structured uh, you know, behavior change interventions with, with a, an explicit aim to conserve uh, biodiversity. But why have they really remained outside of the mainstream? I think, I think it's because we, biodiversity conservation comes from a natural science tradition. You can see that in the name of, of the discipline. It originally, was conservation biology. I think more recently, we've become a bit more inclusive and moved to conservation science. But so, you know, with that tradition in the natural sciences we tend to regard, you know, things like species monitoring, counting species, mapping habitat as what conservation really is about, and and forget that in the end, wildlife lives or dies based on what decisions people make at the end of the day. Um, And so because of that, I think it's taken us quite a while, actually, you know, I think longer than um, we would like to, to admit to really embrace some of these approaches that really focus on and put human behavior at the center of of what conservation or conserving biodiversity should look like.
0: With this focus more towards biology and less towards human behavior do you think we currently understand consumers and their demand for illegally traded wildlife products enough to be able to apply successful behavior change interventions at the moment?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I think it's always, you know, surprising and and sort of in in, uh, in a negative way how little we know, even for things that we've been doing interventions for a long time. You know, even for things like, say, uh, shark fin, for example, high profile issue, pangolin scale use, for example. You know, uh, some of these high-profile issues. Once you go down and look, look through what literature is available, what studies have been done around who the consumers are, where they are, what the preferences and motivations of consumers, you know, for buying product X or Y uh, really are, uh, it's really, I think, jarring how little information we have. And so often it seems that we have, you know, this crisis mentality, you know, the conservation biology at its at its inception, and as it was known then, conservation biology was was described as a crisis discipline. We have this biodiversity crisis. We have to do something. We have to do it now, right? No, no time for planning, no time for research. It's only action uh, that has to be undertaken immediately. And I think that, you know, that plays to our disadvantage very often um, because we are, in essence, shooting in the dark. Often things might not really go our way. not have the impact we would hope and of course you know we cannot discount instances of actually having the opposite effect because these are complex systems we don't live in a vacuum people's behavior is shaped by you know a myriad of different factors from their own personal factors to the social factors around the group that they're in to macro factors right country global factors and so you know i i do think that for a group of people you know, if we now thinking about conservation conservation scientists or conservationists more broadly even, that are so keen to have uh, impact quickly, I think it is surprising how little we know about the systems we're trying to influence.
0: Yeah, definitely. And there seems to be such a huge number of motivations behind the buying and consumption of wildlife products, um, such as I think some of the ones I've seen are cultural, financial, functional, (laughs) nutritional, medicinal, recreational, and more. But with so many of these motivational clusters, what types of interventions are capable of influencing such a wide-ranging mix of actors and behaviors, or is it more a case of targeting and triaging? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I I guess I'll start just by emphasizing that. Whilst
1: there are a lot of motivations, motivations are not even the only thing we need to consider um, when it comes to whether a person decides to buy a product X or Y, right? So there's you know, even an additional level of complexity that focuses around, say, opportunity. People, someone might might be motivated to buy something, but they might not have the opportunity to buy it because it's not available, because for whatever different reason, right? Um, there's also the ability, the, the issue of capacity. Are they able to uh, purchase it? For you know, it might might be a social norm, for example, right? Might, might be that's not well seen within their uh, peer group or their family to be seen as using product Y or buying product Z. There's a lot of complexity, uh, you know, behind determining who, who is the consumer of, of this or, or that product. But more to your question, and, and more more directly, it's definitely issue of segmenting, right? There, there is no intervention that reduces consumers' c- c- consumption of wildlife products in general, right? It has to be something that's much more specific. And if you look at the relatively limited uh, literature we have, even for things like For example, pangolin is a good example, right? So it's it's, it's one group, one taxa, right? It's eight species, but it can be used in very, very diverse ways, right? The meat, for example, can be consumed in restaurants. In the Asian context, it's a luxury product, for example. In the African context, most often more subsistence, but still can be offered in restaurants, for example. The scales used as a medicinal product. Also, pangolin wine, is is made in several Asian countries. Scales can be used as ornamental products, for example. So we're just talking about eight species, one sort of biological group, and here we have all these different uses, right? So to think that we'll be able to have an intervention that cuts across even just pangolins, right? Even just all the uses and different types of uh, motivations that people might have to use pangolin products, it's not gonna happen. It needs to be very, very specific. It needs to be, you know, for example, Was uh, recently a doctoral uh, researcher here at Oxford who was doing work on pangolins in Vietnam. And when she looked at segmentation, we did segmentation just for people who were looking to buy pangolin meat in one particular Vietnamese. City, right? There was a Vietnamese city that was strategically important, it's a big city, and so you know that's the sort of work we need to be doing, um, and we need to be at the level at which we need to be working. Um, and there really isn't a silver bullet that will allow us to work across all products or across all countries, or even within a country. For example, a lot of this work tends to focus on China because of the, the size of the market, of course. But China is a very big, not only a very big country but also very diverse. Um, and so, you know, to think that can we can assume that the motivation of someone in, in Beijing or Shanghai would be the same as someone in, say, Inner Mongolia or, you know, some other region, you know, that, that's most, most often not the case. And so it just reinforces this need that we have for, for insights, for behavioral insights around the consumers of these different products.
0: Yeah, brilliant. And this is quite a broad question, so it might be quite mm. difficult to answer, but what needs to be considered when deciding what behavioral intervention campaigns to choose? Yeah, so,
1: you know, um, there are really sort of, I guess, two, two types of factors. Uh, one is sort of much more practical, and that is, for example, what resources you have available? Or are you likely to be able to, to find for your intervention? And this is, is critical because it dictates the scale of your intervention. It dictates the types of things you can focus on. It also interacts with things like your geography of interest, if you're interested in you know for example some of the work we're doing now with singa in singapore singapore is a much smaller country right so relatively speaking compared to say uh, some of the neighboring countries which, which are much more much bigger have a lot more people the scale is very different right so that's so those are the sort of some some practical considerations then of course the other is impact in terms of what what is the behavior that you get the most return on if you change it, and this is of course not always really clear. Again, it comes back to some of the knowledge or, or or lack of it that we have. So going back to the issue, you know, pangolin is a good example. Is the trade in scales more important than the trade in meat? How do we how do we make that? Which one should be the priority? Um, and it's not always clear which one is most important. And so there's. I guess sort of the biological significance on one hand, but then there's also the behavioral plasticity, if you if you wanna call it. So how how hard is it to change a given behavior, right? So in some cases, uh, it's often often the case that you know might have a, a behavior that has a deep cultural uh, significance that has been it's been in place for a long time. That is more likely to be hard to change. That compared to something that is much more recent, maybe uh, a behavior that is uh, less tied to a particular sort of identity of of, of the group, possibly easier to change, right? So there's there's all these sort of uh, mixture of considerations on one hand the you know the 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 resources you have available how much impact you're hoping to achieve right and then the feasibility on the on the ground just how easy is it to to change or, or you envision it to be to change a particular behavior and of course and then and then you know i'll just add at the very end sometimes there's also other things that often people might not consider, you know, really, really important, but, you know, it's important to realize that, as I mentioned, some of these, some of the use of these, these products has deep cultural, uh, you know, significance. And so that is, of course, a really important, really important to be mindful of the social, cultural impacts of doing some of this work, and also uh, being respectful um, for different cultures. And this also means that very often, in, in, in some instances, governments might not be willing to support you know, particular work on demand reduction on particular species for example. And if that's the case, it, everything else doesn't really matter. You might have the resources, you might have the best consumer research in the world, you might have um, a behavior that's feasible to change, but if you don't have support from the key stakeholders on the ground to, that, for the work to happen then it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. So I guess there's really a sort of constellation of different things that you have to take into account. The stars have to align for things to happen on the ground.
0: And Jay, yeah, you can see that some t- tiger parts, specifically, and and I guess other wildlife parts, are used in luxury products, and some kind of used more medicinally. And um, do you believe that marketing a suitable alternative would be easier than stopping them from consuming any commodity fulfilling that motivation entirely?
1: Yeah, so you know, it's generally it's a generally held sort of truth across the marketing literature and I think behavioral sciences more broadly that the smaller the change the easiest easier is to get implemented right so to to get someone to just not do something is commonly a harder task than to use less of that same thing or to use just a slightly different thing right and so what that suitable alternative might be is another question and again not one that is Necessarily easy to answer, so you know with some work uh, that's led by uh, colleagues at uh, San Diego uh, Zoo Global, we've been working on, on bear bile in, in Cambodia and Vietnam, and we've been investigating what, what the potential substitutes for bear bile might be, for example, and there's of course, you know, a, a, not, not a short list of candidates, there's plant alternatives, there's synthetic alternatives, there's the potential to use uh, bile from farmed bears, of course, which has other, other implications, but you know, just sticking to the, the question at hand for a second, uh, th- we have those alternatives and to understand what might be suitable, not just from the point of view of the consumer. And again, support the highlight, often consumers, we, we talk about them as, as one entity, but very often there's multiple group, groups of consumers with different motivations, different preferences, right? So we have to cater to these different groups. that might have different sizes, um, different identities, right? Different profiles. And so really this question of, yes, a substitute is often easier, from a conceptual theoretical point of view but what should that be becomes the question and more often than not in my experience that question really isn't a black or white uh, one and it, it really isn't very easy to to solve you know when you talk about animal products in traditional medicine the go-to answer is let's use plants but it's important to realize that very often we actually don't know anything about the conservation status of the of the plants that are used in these substitutes. And so there really isn't any guarantee that we're not just trading one threatened species for another. And that's, I think, important to to, to recognize and important to sort of think about it in a more sort of systemic way and about the impacts of different solutions that we're proposing, you know, in a more holistic way. Uh, fashion.
0: It's obvious from from some of your answers that there are multiple challenges to applying behavior change interventions. But what do you think are some of the biggest challenges and complexities you've come across involved in realizing the potential of some of these campaigns?
1: I think one key challenge is that I think it boils down to some of the some of the things I mentioned when when thinking about the, you know why haven't we mainstream more behavioral science into in, into conservation support? Know, interventions and work. Um, and that is this sort of this focus on counting, you know, in essence, uh, as a, uh, you know, documenting declines mostly, rather than uh, really getting to the source of the, of the threats, right? So counting how many of this species or that species still exist, mapping habitat, looking at deforestation, looking at habitat loss, uh, which is all really important. But, you know, we're still very focused on the biodiversity itself, rather than, uh, you know, the, the agents of of that decline and then those threats to biodiversity and i think that is maybe one one big obstacle because it means that we get way fewer resources and, and so that of course just means that there's less ability to do you know more of this kind of work so that's i think one the second is that and this is sort of linked i guess to some degree is that uh, often there's a misunderstanding about how this work how this work actually yields results right so sometimes you know you look at proposals or you look at you know there's the launch of a of of an initiative uh, that focuses on changing behavior, and you'll have these headlines of 50% change, 30% change, uh, decrease, or whatever that might be, right? It's important to realize, you know, those things are most often not realistic. You know, you look at uh, interventions in other sectors, those are not the results that they're getting, regardless of how uh, well-designed the interventions are. And so I, I feel that because we live in this, climate where there's a lot of competition for funding competition for recognition often so we you know setting ourselves to to fail by having these you know very high unrealistic sort of expectations of of these initiatives so i think that's maybe, you know, connected because it also speaks to the fact that often we don't have when it comes to, uh, you know, reviewers for grants, reviewers for, you know, these different sets of opportunities, really people do expertise to really evaluate what is being proposed. And so we fall into these, into these traps almost. And I guess... So I guess, yeah, I guess there's, there's resources, there's maybe a, a capacity element. You know, we don't have a lot of people that have this sets of expertise and experience, and that's definitely also a limitation. So I think those are maybe the key things. And the last one, I think, you know, revolves around this issue of, of, of being a crisis discipline. And, and I think very often for these interventions to have even just a fair chance of having a positive impact, we do need to invest in the planning We do need to invest in the implementation, you know, and often that is not what happens. Often what I see is interventions that carried out without any consumer research, without a target audience being defined, um, interventions that are being, uh, that are focused on reach only, um, as opposed to understanding whether they're motivating or driving change, which is ultimately what we want to see. You know, reach is is really not a, a very meaningful indicator of impact. Um, And so I think those are sort of the limitations. Some of them are self-imposed, I think, within our field, but others are also constraints that, you know, externally they're imposed on on, on conservationists.
0: I think you touched upon this point earlier about ethics when you were speaking about the social and cultural Mm -hmm. considerations. Behaviour change interventions do often raise ethical concerns. So, for example, they've been criticized for undermining personal Mm -hmm. autonomy and for being... Mm -hmm undemocratic and Mm non-transparent but do you think this is an important consideration for those choosing to undertake interventions in a conservation arena
2: it's
1: absolutely crucial it's absolutely crucial Um, I certainly have many thoughts to share when it comes to this I mean the first one is that one thing I've seen in my own practice is this movement towards co-design of interventions with the stakeholders, with the, with the audiences that we're hoping to influence. And I think this is a an important thing because if you have the people that you're hoping to influence at the heart of the process that generates you know, what intervention you end up implementing, I think that is one way that you can try to guarantee that you end up with uh, an intervention that is culturally sensitive, that uh, respects local norms, local, uh, what is locally acceptable. And, and it's important to realize that, that that's often quite separate from what's legally possible, right? Those two things are quite separate. So that's one thing I've that, that I would um, certainly highlight. I mean, the second thing that I will say, though, is that it's really important to put these interventions in context. You know, the fact that the vast majority of times that conservationists try to influence behavior is through mandatory laws, where people have no no choice over whether they comply or not, right? And so compared to that, compared to, say, a situation where you issue a protected area regulation and those resources are no longer available, it's not forbidden to use them, for example, right? That's a much more extreme way of dictating people's behavior than any of these voluntary interventions, right? They focus on voluntary change. So I think that's also important for us. Sometimes um, you know, there's this sense that, oh, you know when you think about some of these uh, demand reduction interventions, we're trying to socially engineer, you know, society or or something to that effect. When, you know, in fact, (laughs) these are some of the softer tools, tools that conservation actually uses. Often, much more more often, the tools that conservationists push for are hard, mandatory restrictions on how people should behave. And so I think those are deserving of of a much higher level of scrutiny than these ones focused on voluntary change, uh, you know, do. So I think that's, Maybe those are the two things uh, that I would highlight. And maybe a final one would just be that um, one thing we definitely need is much more sort of clear set sort of sets of standards so uh, in my role as part of the, the board of the International Social Marketing Association, we're now developing standards, ethics standards for, for our community, uh, in this case, social marketing. And I think there's a lot to be learned from those standards. And I really hope that uh, we can work with different partners to adapt them to the conservation reality. Because I do think that having those standards, those benchmarks as to what the expectations are in terms of ethics um, is really, really crucial to uh, uh, the setting expectations and, and clearly defining what is, what is acceptable and what
0: a massive thank you to Diogo Verissimo there for taking us through the benefits and challenges of applying behaviour change interventions to the illegal wildlife trade. Next, we are joined by Grace Gabriel, I4's Regional Director for Asia. Grace has dedicated herself to addressing the illegal trade challenges wildlife face around the world, specifically focusing on how consumer demand for wildlife parts and products fuels poaching of endangered species in the wild. To combat this, she has spearheaded a series of behaviour change campaigns, working alongside groups from traditional medicine, tourism and even the World Bank to end tiger trade and save the dwindling populations of wild tigers in Asia. Grace has testified before the European Union Commission and the UK's Parliamentary Environmental Audit Committee on global wildlife crime and protecting wild tigers. The Interpol Wildlife Crime Working Group also invited her to speak about how to improve control of the global online trade for wildlife. We are lucky to have Grace here today to share her experience with managing behaviour change interventions in China.
2: Yeah, COVID-19 definitely was a wake-up call. Um, about the detrimental effects of wildlife trade. China swiftly issued a series of legislative actions including uh, closing wildlife markets, ban the hunting, trading, and transportation of terrestrial wild animals for food. China's uh, National People's Congress had also strengthened the wildlife protection law, the criminal law, the biosafety law, and the animal epidemic prevention law. And also uh, importantly, China revised the addendum to the wild animal protection law by adding 517 more species to the national protected species list. And for the first time, the species list included animals that previously were called vermins and animals that uh, fly in the sky, swim in water, and you know walk on land. So that that was another uh, very important step, and and that list hasn't been changed or updated for decades. So basically, COVID nineteen pushed the battle against illegal wildlife trade to the top of Chinese government's agenda. You know the the laws, stronger laws, motivated. Better enforcement in 2019. There was a large seizure of um, pangolins and ivory, and in Singapore. And that information originally came from crackdown, a market uh, market crackdown in China, and Chinese enforcers um, got the information and tip off Singapore to seize that uh, shipment and. Also, recently, there was a a Wildlife Justice Commission had a report called uh, Bringing Down the Dragon. It talked about China's uh, law enforcement agencies bringing down a criminal gang that have been operating for decades, smuggling ivory into China. And also, IFA has been, in, in the past four years, IFA has been supporting law enforcement agencies um, in China to bring other uh, Asian countries, neighboring neighboring countries. For instance, after a law enforcement agency workshop we conducted with Vietnam, large seizures were made in ports in Vietnam. And the, you know, it's just stronger laws and motivate enforcers to to do more. It's just, you know, wonderful to see.
0: Yeah, that's brilliant. And then with all these new legislative moves giving more power for prosecuting wildlife crimes, how does this help create an environment for behaviour change?
2: It's really the stigma effect. Stronger laws combined with vigorous enforcement and meaningful penalties for violators stigmatize wildlife trade and consumption, sending a stronger message that engaging in illegal wildlife trade brings risks, not only personal risks, but social risks. In a behavior change campaign, there are three key components. One is raising awareness, you know, building the base of knowledge and erase ignorance. And then another component is policy actions which includes enforcement actions um, and another component is society mobilization so these three components are intertwined reinforcing each other to achieve sustained behavior change stronger policies vigorous enforcement and meaningful penalties you know, not only increase the risk for individuals engaging in illegal wildlife trade, but more importantly, it creates a broader social environment that stigmatizes illegal wildlife trade. In the last few years, um, in addition to these legislative moves China has made the government had also set up a first batch of five national parks, including parks for pandas, parks for tiger and leopards. And the government had also promoted a concept called ecological civilization. All these uh, policy moves and, you know, promotion of the protection of ecological biodiversity help create a social norm that's more wildlife friendly. And in fact, based on these stronger laws, um, IFA has conducted a campaign because from the pre-campaign survey, we found that one of the most important deterrents for wildlife consumption is the legal ramifications. And another important deterrence is this social norm. You know, if if somebody consume and what he or she thinks, what other people will say about it. So this shows us that consumers' intention to use wildlife parts and products is very much influenced by their Beliefs around uh, the benefits or concerns of using wildlife, and also perceived social acceptability or unacceptability of their use.
0: So obviously, the the government and the law enforcers have a big impact in the behaviour change campaigns. And um, but how important, therefore, are partnerships um, with different sectors?
2: Partnerships are essential for behavior change campaigns. We need partners in in government. We need partners in the media. We need partners in the public and, and the private sector. We have, in fact, media partners who provide promotional space for the campaigns to raise awareness and help amplify campaign messages uh, for instance, in 2007, IFA did a survey in China where we found that 70% of the Chinese didn't know ivory comes from dead elephants because in Chinese, ivory is xiang ya, which means elephant teeth. So people think, you know, elephant teeth comes from, a, a person's teeth can fall off and a person don't die. And, and so that's why you know people thought elephants also their teeth can fall off and and people can just pick it up and elephants don't die so we developed the campaign basically the campaign is called mom i have teeth it's a it's a monologue between a baby elephant and its mother and that you know the baby telling the mother that he or she he is having teeth now and the mother is not happy. And we tell people why. And so the campaign sensitizing Chinese to the fact elephants have to die for people to have ivory. And this campaign, when we took it for testing, the company J.C. DeGaulle in China loved it. And they said, we'll put it across country. So they did, they put it all over the country in subways, at airports, on buses, and it went viral without us putting it online. And so, and and it even somebody took a picture of the ad in subways and posted into China's college entrance exam as a language test. And so that subsequently reached 9 million college applicants. So that campaign in four years, we did a campaign evaluation. We found that the campaign penetrated seventy 75% of urban China and reduced the group with the most propensity to buy ivory from 54 to 26%. And You know, that's the the power of media companies as partners. And of course, we need government partners to maintain political will to combat illegal wildlife trade. And awareness raising can erase ignorance, but to combat greed, we need strong government policies to ban ivory trade. Since China banned ivory markets at the end of 2017, ivory prices have dropped across Asia, across the world, in fact. Um, So consumer intentions to purchase continue to slide. Most recent survey in 2021, a WWF survey found that 18% consumer intention to purchase ivory dropped from 43% prior to the ban. So more importantly, the ban and the campaign together have reduced the the poaching of elephants. According to the data from Convention on International Trade in Dangerous Species, CITES, elephant poaching in Africa continue to drop. And another key partner, I, I have to mention this partner is the Uh, online companies. And, you know, I thought WWF and traffic, we uh, facilitated and convened a coalition against wildlife trafficking online. Currently, that coalition had 47 companies. And since 2018, to the end of 2021, The coalition companies have blocked and removed over 11 million posts selling illegal wildlife parts and products. And during this time frame, they have reached 11 billion users around the world uh, for awareness raising.
0: Do you believe that marketing a suitable alternative would be easier than stopping them from consuming any commodity fulfilling that motivation entirely? I
2: specifically talked with a traditional Chinese medicine doctor. Um, His name is uh, Chen Keji. He is uh, from China's Academy of Traditional Chinese Medicine. And he once told me that an ingredient used a 1,000 years ago when nothing else was available, doesn't mean it's it's necessary today. Tiger bone was used in medicine thousands of years ago, and TCM itself is an experience-based medicine, and it's a combination of different ingredients, and 97% of the ingredients come from plants and minerals. And so it's very easy, actually, for TCM practitioners to replace the function of tiger bone or bear bile or any other um, wildlife parts and products with um, er herbs and other uh, plant-based ingredients that has similar functions. So if we are talking about alternatives, I, I think that alternatives have to come from the, uh, the practitioners themselves to replace tiger bone in uh, traditional Chinese medicine. And in fact, alternative ingredients do exist. And, and it's not necessary to use tiger bone in traditional medicine anyway.
0: So you've obviously spoken about some of the other, I thought, campaigns that you've been involved with um, and led in, in China to change consumer behavior. Were there any other examples that you had? There is
2: another campaign that IFA has been conducting in China. It's a very comprehensive social behavior change communications campaign that we are changing attitudes, social norms, and behaviors to re- reduce consumer demand for parts and products from elephants, tigers, uh, rhinos, and pangolins. The pre-campaign survey, we found that the legal ramifications is a a key deterrence uh, for consumption. And so we base our theory of change on the assumption that consumers' intention to use wildlife parts and products is influenced by beliefs. So the beliefs that includes their perceived benefits or concerns around the use of wildlife. And also their consumption intention is influenced by the social norms. So so the social acceptability of their use. So, So based on this theory of change, we conducted the we implemented this campaign focusing a, around a few areas one area is to enhance legal awareness of the laws banning the trade of these endangered animals and increase perception of the penalties and risks associated in violating provisions of these laws And the other mini campaign under the the larger demand reduction effort was a campaign, we named it Wildlife Free Gifting Campaign, because this campaign evolved around the deeply rooted cultural practice gifting. People give luxury products or wildlife products, could use it to Uh, demonstrate status, to cultivate personal or business relationship, to show filial piety, to define status among peers. So there is a lot of cultural roots in this one act of gifting. And we build this campaign to urge people to, to give the gift without wildlife. So these campaigns uh, were positioned within the larger social environment in China, which is promoting a green, healthy lifestyle um, and the ecological civilization. And so from May, 2018 to April, 2021, the campaigns were implemented in wildlife trade and consumption, key cities via multiple online and offline channels with well designed dissemination materials, which included 10 visuals and 11 short videos. And the campaign in five years achieved 2.6 billion views and leveraged 16.3 million U.S. dollars in in in-kind donations. And more importantly, we have just um, last year, we did the post-campaign evaluation. The campaign lowered future intention to purchase parts and products. For elephants, the the reduction was from 77% to 42% for rhino from 74% to 27%, for pangolins from 65% to 23%, and for tiger products from 74% to 38%. And this percentage change was observed among owners and past intent to purchase uh, people who are exposed to the campaign compared with the the same owner and future purchasers in the 2018 uh, survey. And also uh, there's another another set of data that was very significant was um, from 2018 to 2021, perceived social unacceptability of buying or using products significantly increased for elephants from 2% to 46%, for rhinos from 7% to 60%, for pangolins from 4% to 60%, and for tigers from 5% to
0: 53%. These are really huge campaigns and they cover multiple years and, and they would obviously need quite a lot of funding, I imagine. So what challenges do you find with running these types of campaigns?
2: Yeah, we, we actually had a lot of a lot of challenges, you know, include cultural perceptions. We need to understand really deeply the the motivations of consumption and also understand the cultural preference or bias um, and why people give the gift of wildlife parts and products. So even though the campaign, we have seen this huge impact to keep that impact, keep that behavior change sustained for generations takes may take generations, takes a long time, behavior change campaigns takes a long time. So we just need to continue, you know, stay with this behavior change campaign and learn the lessons. So I think the big challenge is to have the patience and have the donors have the patience and stay with us and continue to motivate this whole society approach to behaviour change.
0: A huge thank you to both of our guests, Dr. Diogo Verissimo from Oxford University and Grace Gabriel from i4, who have taken us through the theoretical background of behaviour change campaigns and shared examples of their practical application. After listening to their experiences, it is clear that behaviour change campaigns have huge potential as a solution to the illegal trade of tiger parts, but they should be used in tandem with a variety of other strategies. Look out for our fifth episode airing next month, where I will be joined by some more special guests. And in the meantime, please do subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And I'll see you next time. Thanks again for listening.